0: Let's go to God in prayer once more before we go to his word. Let's pray. God, we pray that as we turn to your word, that with your spirit's help, we would know how deep your love is for us. And that we would know that Jesus Christ has come to die for sinners like us. That we would believe that truth, And by your power, live it for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are what you eat. At least from your body's point of view. So that could be a good thing or a bad thing. We eat food for both pleasure and life. But some of those foods, those good-tasting foods, are actually hurting the body. And over a period of time, we've learned that they may be killing us. Many diseases, including heart disease and cancer, come through the very things that we eat for life, that even taste good. Now, on the flip side, some foods can actually heal the body. They strengthen our immune system and give us the nutrients that our body needs for life. Now, if that's true for the body, could something like that be true for the soul? Is it possible that you might be pursuing life in what you think is good, even before God, but it's actually leading you to death and condemnation? Especially since what we pursue for life we do based on our own happiness or to avoid pain. The truth is, you are what you worship, and that can be good or bad. But life and death hang in the balance. God has sent his son Jesus so that we might both see our spiritual sickness and look to him for life and salvation for true healing and to see this please turn with me today in your bibles to john 3 verse 14 john chapter 3 verse 14 if you're using one of the church bibles you can find that on page 943 943 and if you're new to the bible the large bold numbers are the chapters the smaller ones are the verses and we're looking at chapter 3 verse 14 through 21 Now, for context, remember that back in chapter one, we met John the Baptist. He's clearly a prophet, and everyone wants to know whether or not he's actually the promised Messiah. That's God's promised King and deliverer. Well, John points everyone to Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, John's followers start following Jesus. And then they also testify he's the Messiah. Then in chapter two, Jesus demonstrates in a miraculous way that he is, in fact, who they say he is and some people believe in him but then we read in chapter 2 verse 24 that Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to people for he himself knew what was in man Jesus knew this true spiritual state of people we're all sinners which means that we're all spiritually broken and rebellious against God. And then we met Nicodemus, a very sincere, devoted Jew. He, he is devoted to keeping God's law. So he's a good man from everyone's point of view. And yet, knowing the true spiritual state of people, Jesus tells Nicodemus that no one, can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Including Nicodemus. Which means that before we enjoy eternal life with God, something has to change in us. We must be cleansed from our sin and given a new heart. And only God's Spirit can do that. And whether or not God's Spirit does that depends entirely on the Spirit. That was last week. So we were left with Nicodemus, perhaps wondering, if the Spirit creates new life in us, how does that new life come about? How does the Spirit connect Jesus' work to our new birth? And what we find today is that Jesus doesn't leave Nicodemus hanging. Here's the strong call of these verses for us this morning. Find healing from your sin for eternal life through faith in God's only Son. Find healing for your sin for eternal life through faith in God's only Son. And if you're taking notes to help you listen and follow along, there are three ways to Look for that healing in Christ. First, know that you're spiritually sick. This is in verses 14 through 15. Know you're spiritually sick. See God's love for you. That's in verses 16 through 18. See God's love for you. And finally, run to his light. Verses 19-21. through Run to his light. So first, know or realize that you're spiritually sick. Look at chapter 3, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now again, just before these verses, Jesus has affirmed what Nicodemus has said about him. He is, in fact, from God. But he's more than just a teacher. He's the Son of Man from Daniel 7. So he's the one who approaches God's throne and is given a kingdom that will never end. And now in these two verses, Jesus is linking the Spirit's work and his own work as the Son of Man with those who believe in him and therefore share eternal life with him. And he makes this connection with an illustration from the Old Testament. So listen as I read Numbers 21, 4-9. through 9. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to bypass the land of Edom. But the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water and we detest this wretched food. Then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and they bit them so that many Israelites died. The people then came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so that he will take, away the, take the snakes away from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. Now, parts of that story are shocking. I mean, for one, the Lord sent venomous snakes to these people. But we should be equally shocked by their rebellion. God has just delivered them from slavery in Egypt. They've passed through the Red Sea by God's hand, and the Egyptian army has perished in those same waters. God has miraculously provided food for them on their journey through the desert. He has promised them a land flowing with milk and honey. He has just delivered them from enemies in that land. But despite all that, They complain in blind, rebellious unbelief. Why did you lead us out of Egypt to die? We hate this place. We hate this food. And that's a rejection of the God who saves and a lack of trust in what he's promised. God responds by giving them Egypt, it's what they want. So he sends a plague on the people. Not an infestation of locusts or frogs, but venomous snakes. Now, thankfully, God's judgment had the intended effect. The snakes reveal the real killer within them. Not venom, but sin. So the people cry out for help. We have sinned. Moses, intercede for us. Now, what's really interesting at this point is that God chooses a bronze snake lifted up on a pole as the means to heal them. He could have chosen anything. But he chooses something made in the likeness of the very thing that was killing them. Something made in the likeness of what killed them is what saves them. And Jesus says here in verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And four times in John's Gospel, that phrase, lifted up, refers to the cross. That's where Jesus is lifted up for people who have been bitten by the original serpent and are suffering under the curse of sin and death. It is in us, working all the time. And it leads us in all sorts of ways to rebel against God, blinding us to His goodness, distrusting what He says, and seeking life outside of His promises. And so like Israel, we all deserve to suffer under God's wrath in judgment. But Romans 8.3 says that God sent His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Though Jesus is the sinless Son of God, He became a person just like us. And on the cross, He became sin for us. Jesus intercedes for us by taking our place, bearing our sins in his body, and suffering under God's wrathful judgment for us. And his own righteous blood serves as the antidote for sin. Because when Jesus died for us, he doesn't just cleanse us from sin, but his perfect life of righteousness is imputed to us, it is credited to our own account by faith. And so by looking to Him in faith, God declares us to be righteous in His sight. And it doesn't end there. It's not over, because lifted up has a double meaning. When we read about God's suffering servant in Isaiah 53, the one who would bear our sin in His body and by His blood would heal us, we read in Isaiah fifty-two thirteen. 13, so just before... The suffering servant, God says, See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. After Jesus was lifted up on the cross and died under the wrath of God for our sin, God raised him to life. Jesus ascended into heaven and takes a seat at God's right hand. And from that exalted position, he reigns over all things and will reign forever In a world made new. That is a world reborn. And so faith in the Son of Man enables us to enjoy eternal life in that new creation. As the Spirit makes us new. This new life is one where sin and death are defeated. No more crying. No more pain. Only the joy of knowing God and living in His presence. Now, think of the context here. Jesus is telling Nicodemus, a devoted Jew who's trying to please God with his life. He's wanting to follow the law because he believes that's where life would be. And Jesus tells that guy, you need to be made new by the Spirit. You need to be cleansed from sin and given a new heart that loves and obeys God. So though Nicodemus thought he was pursuing life, death was still working in him. He couldn't see that his most righteous acts were stained by his pride. And that without seeing his spiritual state, he was actually belittling God's holiness. Thinking that he could be that good with his own works. Neglecting God's grace by trying to keep the law. Both of those things are an offense to God. And so, just like those who are in the throes of death had to look upon the bronze snake to live, so Nicodemus and every sinner living under the curse of death must look upon the Son of Man, lifted up to live. Jesus is the cure for spiritual deadness brought on by sin. Now, Nicodemus can't control the Spirit. I mean, he can't cause the Spirit to bring the new birth. Only the Spirit does the work of rebirth. But Jesus isn't leaving Nicodemus like a leaf blowing in the wind without any sense of how the Spirit goes about doing this miraculous work. New birth is experienced in sinners like us, so, eternal life. Begins within us through believing the words of the Son of Man and then looking by faith for salvation in his death and resurrection. And notice verse 15 says that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Have. That's present tense. We have it. When the Spirit makes us new, He dwells within us he's working life now no longer are we under the curse of death with death working in us it's life that works in us and so we know the joy of God's presence our hope is already being realized in part so as a Christian we can sing the songs that we've sung this morning there's no fear in death there's no guilt in life we are living our worst life now while tasting the best of what's yet to come. God already hears us. He provides for us, protects us, speaks to us, and fills us with peace, hope, and love. And this eternal life is offered to everyone who believes. Think again of that bronze snake. Whenever anyone looked at the bronze snake... As an act of faith, no matter how badly they had been bitten, right? No, no matter how near to death they were at that moment, they were healed and recovered. And Jesus is applying that scenario here in verse 15. And so the grace ought to be shocking to us. Because Jesus knows what's in us. It's, it's worse than, than venom from a snake, He he sees our secret and shameful sins. He he knows our our thoughts. He knows what we are as sinners. Something that if we saw with with spiritual eyes would look utterly demonic to us. Because in our natural state, we're, we're bent on rebellion against God in our hearts. And yet Jesus says... No matter how bad you are. No matter how near to death you are. How great that death is working in you. Whoever looks to the sun and believes will be saved. But here's the breathtaking reality. The text doesn't say that everyone in Numbers 21 looked upon the bronze snake and lived. Maybe they all did. We don't know. It just it doesn't tell us. But to understand the parallel to Jesus in our day and realize how breathtaking this is, let's just suppose for a minute that despite God's remedy, some people, bitten by these snakes, wouldn't look upon the bronze serpent. In the agony of death, they wouldn't trust God's remedy. You might imagine some of them just being so mad at God for what he did to them. You know, suffering as they are and seeing these snakes as an unjust punishment for their rebellion. That filled with such self-righteousness and pride, they refuse to look upon God and give him the pleasure of saving them. They don't want anything to do with God if he's that kind of God. So they don't look at the snake and die in their rebellion. Or you can probably easily imagine that some didn't believe that looking upon the serpent would, serpent would do anything. It's just, it's just foolish. It's a, it's a bronze snake. I can't do anything. Which is true. That bronze snake couldn't. But it's clear from what God says to Moses that it's the means by which God saves. But some don't even consider looking because it just doesn't seem that likely. Now, Just reading Numbers 21, as we did earlier, I I assume that we all thought, of of course they all look. It, It seems hard to imagine, as you're reading it, why anyone wouldn't look when they're that desperate for life. But if you're a Christian, you see it all the time. Because people don't see their true spiritual state. And so they deny the truth of God's word. They're blind to their own sin, and the gospel either sounds offensive to them or foolish How can God judge me? That sounds unloving and wrong. I'm a good person. Or I don't see how obeying an ancient book and following one guy is really going to make me happy. Or how can one man who died save everyone who believes? And they find trusting in their own works to be more believable. And so they refuse to look upon the Son of Man and the curse of sin continues to work death in them And eventually, death under judgment will be the final state. Friends, being a sinner is like living in the beginning stages of cancer when it's not diagnosed. You think you're fine, but death is working in you. Running from Christ might look like life, but it's really idolatry. You're looking to something else other than God to give you life. And you are what you worship. It's killing you. If you're not a Christian, we're really glad you're here. And believe me, we we don't really want to be like that first doctor's visit uh, because it doesn't feel good to to tell anyone or be told that you're living under the curse of death and you're going to face God's judgment. But if you're honest with yourself, I I think you already know that you're not perfect. None of us are. We don't live for God with all of our hearts or all of our souls, mind, or strength. Life is a lot about us, not God. And so while it might feel like running away from church or from God will preserve your life because it won't make you feel bad. The reality is is that the worst news we can tell you is met with the best news. God has provided a cure. And he's done that because he loves sinners. Which brings us to the second way to find healing in Christ. See God's love for you. See God's love for you. Look at verse 16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The focal point of God's saving grace, the focal point of God's Spirit's work, is God's own Son. The interchange we need from the new birth of the Spirit is grounded in the Son of Man being lifted up. And being lifted up is grounded in the love of God for the world. And it's not a nebulous love. We don't have to question how deep or strong this love is. We don't have to question what it is or whether or not it's a love that reaches even us. We can know. Because God's love is demonstrated to us. For God loved the world in this way. We can see it. So like a husband who provides for his family, is faithful to his wife, and self-sacrificially serves in his home. Isn't questioned by his wife when he says, I love you. Because she can see it. It's demonstrated. And the depth of love demonstrated here by God. It's beyond our comprehension. He gave his one and only son. We often measure the depth of someone's love by the value of the gift and what it costs them personally. And therefore, the depth of God's love is beyond being measured. Because the sacrificial gift of His love is the life and fellowship of the person with whom He has enjoyed eternity past in the perfect bond of love. God's gift to the world is truly part of Himself. Coming straight from His heart to give us eternal life with Him. It comes through the death of his most precious treasure, his one and only Son. To be the Son means that Jesus is divine. He's God from God. He has that unique status as the second person of the Trinity, existing in eternity past, enjoying the fellowship of the Father and the Spirit in glory, which means the union between God the Father. And God the Son is far, far greater than the profound union that we experience with our own children. And it is profound. We know that union as imperfect people, with an imperfect love, and with a limited capacity to experience that bond of love. And it's profound. But the Father and the Son... They know and love each other with perfection and without any sort of limit on the capacity to experience this perfect bond of love. It's an incomprehensible love that the father has for his son. And yet it's helpful just to get this, to think about the story of Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham himself was called by God to sacrifice his son on the altar. Every reader who who places himself in that story experiences the emotional turmoil of that event. If you're a parent, you can put yourself there. And it is turmoil. As Abraham takes his beloved son, the son of God's promise, and he binds him to the altar and raises the knife to slay him. Oh, we breathe a sigh of relief when God stops him. He says, Abraham, stop. Don't lay a hand on him. No one wants to read a story like that. We thank God that we hear, Abraham, stop. We breathe a sigh of relief. But God gives himself no such relief. God's love for the world is so deep, deep, deep that He gave His only Son. And here's part of the wonder of God's love. It's not just seen in the depth of love which is measured by the gift and sacrifice, but in the object of His love. It's for the world. Okay, Not just a particular group of people, not particular types of sinners, like Israel. But the world. And love for the world isn't just amazing because of the diversity of the many people in the world, but because of who those people are. The world here isn't a reference to every single person in it. When John talks about the world... He's talking about that rebellious system against God and the people who make it up. It's the word for cosmos here. And if you just read John's theology about the cosmos, it's a rebellious system. It's that system under the curse of death. I was talking with some guys last night about the sermon, and we tried coming up with an analogy for God's love here. And everything that we came up with just felt very offensive and I just frankly worried about being insensitive with those analogies. So I'm just going to say that whether or not you try to make an analogy using the Nazis or ISIS or Antifa or the KKK, it's really hard to imagine one of their hated enemies having a deep, deep love for that group when they also love justice. But the gap between us and all of those corrupt systems and the people who make them up is infinitely smaller than the gap between a holy and just God and this corrupt world. But God loved the world. And He loved the world to an infinite degree in sending his one and only Son. So if you're here today and you're someone who doubts God's love for you, and you don't feel like God loves you, listen, I want you to know and to look into the Bible and see God's love for you. You can know that God loves you if you believe that Jesus is God's son who died upon the cross, then you can just go ahead and insert your name among the everyone who believes. In verse 16. And you can know that God has shown you personally that he loves you more than you can comprehend. Whether or not you feel it might be due in part to your own personal makeup. As a fallen human being, it might be due to your own experiences in a fallen world. But in Christ, I can tell you with 100% confidence, God loves you. And to a certain extent, it's okay to, to have a hard time believing it. Because His love is amazing. It is amazing. It's beyond our comprehension. I mean, let's just be honest. The world isn't that lovable, is it? Praise God that in His common common grace He's kept us from being as bad as we all could be but still uh, people lie and cheat and steal. We're, We're haters. Much like the people in Numbers 21 bitten by snakes we deserve to perish in our rebellion. So God's love is all the more wonderful and amazing, not just because of how big the world is, but because of how truly bad the world is. We can look at our culture today and see an anti-Bible, anti-God world manifested. And it's the kind of world that David suffered in and cried out to the Lord, God, bring judgment upon the earth. Where is justice? But in love... God brings judgment upon His Son. Because, verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Can you see the love of God here? Can you see His heart? I mean, think about it. Did did God really send His one and only Son in order to point His finger at the world and shake it? You know, just to make sure that we don't get away with something? Is that why God took on the trouble of giving up his son on a cross? Is to make sure to condemn us? As if God couldn't punish us unless Jesus came? No. If God wanted to condemn us, he could just leave us right where we're at. He doesn't have to send his son. He could let us live, die, and face judgment without any hope of healing. In fact, he could do that with us today before we even make it home. But God takes on flesh, dwells among us in the person of Jesus, and dies upon a cross, not to condemn, but to save. That's the only thing that makes sense of Jesus' coming. It's love, not condemnation, grace. So again, if you're not a Christian and you're here, we're glad you're here. I don't know how you think about churches. But we want you to know that we believe our love should look like God's love. So while we we won't approve of of any sin, uh, we're not interested in condemning anyone. We too are sinners who've found healing in the love of Christ. And so we want our church to be a, a safe place for every kind of sinner in the world. We want the gospel to be experienced in this place. In fact, the the, the grace that we experience in our life together here is one of the means by which we all come to understand and believe stronger of, of God's love for us in Christ. So we hope you will keep coming and get to know us. The reason God sent Jesus wasn't to condemn us, but to save the world through him. In his love, God has given his one and only son so that whosoever believes will not perish, but have eternal life. And those that refuse the gift remain dead in their sin and condemned. Verse 18. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. Jesus told Nicodemus he must be born again because we're born into this world spiritually rebellious. That's why we don't teach children to to be selfish. We don't teach our kids how to lie. They just do it by nature. And at some point, we're no longer ignorant of what we're doing and we keep on doing it. So it's clear that we all have a terminal case here. We're under God's condemnation and there is no cure outside of faith in the name of the one and only Son of God. That's the exclusive claim of the gospel. And that exclusive claim sounds unloving to many people. How can God be a loving God and there only be one way? So some argue that all religions are like different roads that lead up to the same mountain. Or or the same roads on the same mountain leading up to the same point. Because they all teach the same basic message of love. Or some people will just leave religion out of it and say the exact same thing about life and love. Others would agree that Jesus alone saves, but still, sincere, devoted followers of other religions who pursue the same principles of love are following Jesus, though they don't know it. And one day they'll be surprised when they get to heaven to figure out it was Jesus the whole time. But I don't think Nicodemus is buying any of that. He's one of the most sincere and devoted men of faith there is in Israel. And that's the people who were following God's law. The very law that pointed to Jesus. And yet Jesus says, that's not enough. You must be born again. And just as the Israelites looked upon the bronze snake, so you must look upon the one and only Son of God and believe in His name. Name is a way of referring to His character and work. It's what makes him able to save. Jesus isn't just a teacher from God. He's the son of God who sacrifices his perfect life for us. So the object of our faith matters. If you're trying to fly across the Atlantic, you can't say that all that really matters is flying. You know? So if you, wanna, if you have something against planes, uh, you can try hang gliding or hopping a bird. You know, No, the object of our faith matters. We would say, put your faith in a plane. And the truth is, God isn't unloving because there's only one way to get across. It's His world. We're His creatures. We rebelled, and if He's a just God, He must punish that rebellion. It's just that in love, he immediately made a promise to rescue us. And so he called out Abraham out of, out of paganism and promised to bless the whole world through his offspring. And then God worked miraculously to bring about a great nation through Abraham. And that nation repeatedly turns against God. So God sends prophets again and again to turn them back. And they killed those prophets. But God kept his promise and worked through that rebellious nation to bring about his one and only son. And then a rebellious world crucified that son. And while they were in the very act of killing him, God transferred the sins of everyone who would ever believe in him onto Christ so that those, who, those same people would never taste God's wrath and judgment but have eternal life. After looking at all of redemptive history, can we really say that God is unloving because there is only one way? When in fact, it is amazing grace over the course of history that there is even one way. The the, the name of Jesus is so unique, so divine, that he shouldn't even be mentioned in the same category of people like Gandhi or Mohammed or Buddha or anyone else. Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus simply stands alone in history as the one and only Son of God, Son of Man, descended from heaven, born of the Virgin Mary, crucified under Pontius Pilate, suffered and died, raised on the third day, ascended into heaven. There is no other name associated with that work. So apart from faith in him, we stand condemned in our sinful state of rebellion. In fact, his coming reveals that. He wasn't sent to condemn us But his coming does reveal our condemnation. So to find healing and life in him, run to the light. Run to the light, verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Nonetheless, his coming results in judgment. Why? Because when he came, the world rejected him. Why'd they do that? Well, why do cheaters hate the rules? Because they cheat. The rules expose them as cheaters. People love darkness because their deeds are evil. And so they run from the light of the gospel because it exposes who they are. People would rather maintain their pride than their integrity. We'd rather remain skeptical of the truth than, than to completely submit to it. It's simply easier for us to hang on to a grudge than to forgive our enemies. Pursuing pleasures on our own terms just sounds like there's more life there than pleasing God on his terms. By nature, we love the darkness of our sin. And the light of the gospel of Christ exposes us, so we run from it which is the opposite of what normally should happen. Normally, if you're in a pitch black room and you see a little ray of light creep in, you move towards the light. But in this case, the light of God comes into a dark world and we run from that light to darkness. Contrary to what we like to believe, our beliefs aren't completely dependent on logic. Behavior affects what we think. And this is part of the judgment. The light has come, but we run. So like the person bit by a serpent in the wilderness who refuses to look upon the bronze snake and dies under the judgment, so we stand condemned under our sin because we refuse to look upon the light of Christ in the gospel. It's not because Jesus came to condemn us that we're condemned. It's because we reject Christ that we remain Condemned. So let that sober you. Let that truth just sober you up here. If you love and enjoy your sin without consequences in this world, that's part of the judgment. If you're comfortable in secret sin, There's something that you're hanging on to here this morning that you're going to be quite comfortable leaving here and not telling anyone about it and having no plan to tell anyone about it. If you're comfortable in secret sin or if you're here as a non-Christian and don't feel your need for God, that's part of the judgment. That is judgment. And the truth is, you're missing out on real life. Your purpose is tied to your Creator. He is your greatest source of joy and life, and to pursue life outside of him and love it is judgment. I know this isn't the same, but it's always sad to hear about someone who, who needed surgery in order to get their life back, only to come out addicted to painkillers. What was meant to help them get on their feet becomes an end in itself, and it prevents them from living the life they really want. Spiritually rebellious people do that with the pleasures of this world. Uh, All that's good about this life, all that's good about this world and the pleasures that we experience in it are meant to lead us to God and His goodness. But all those things become an end in themselves, and so we refuse to look to Him. So whether or not you actually feel the pain of your sin this morning... You should believe what you read, here. Turn from your sin and look to Christ for mercy. After all, no one denies that Jesus was a real person. Uh, Jesus really did walk on this earth and die on the cross. The question is why? If the Bible's claims are true, it really shouldn't matter what changes you have to make or what, what truth is exposed about your life. You should believe on Jesus. Especially since the Bible's claims that Jesus has risen have really been affirmed by all the historical evidence. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, the safest thing that you can do is the thing that makes you feel the most vulnerable. I know it's counterintuitive. But don't try to be what you're not. Come into the light and admit to God that you're a sinner. He already sees everything. So just confess it. And repent. Or else you'll end up being just like that young child who's caught in a lie and just keeps digging a hole by avoiding the truth and growing the lie. Just humble yourself, deal with the truth, and lean on God's mercy in Christ. And brothers and sisters, it's the same thing for us as we continue to fight sin together in this church. As we keep looking to Jesus for grace and forgiveness, as we press on, in our hope for eternal life, the safest thing that we can do is just continually bring our sin into the light. We don't want to play in the dark here. Confess to one another and find freedom. It doesn't mean that you need to tell everyone in the church. Tell someone. That's where you'll get to experience the love of God in the church. I know it sounds scary, but it's what we need to experience life in Christ. This is one of the reasons we open up God's word here each week. As Christians, we understand ourselves to be sinners, and we're not trying to deny that. Uh, We don't come here to fool ourselves or others and try to kind of say to everybody else, well, we're, we're the good people in the world. We know we're not. But by the grace of God, we've been made new and want to live for him. And so each week we come, open up this Bible, and expose ourselves to what God has said. This is what expositional preaching is. Right? We've, we've, we're exposing the point of the passage and applying that to our lives so that we live in the light. So sometimes that feels like, you know, the, the moment when someone walks into your room really early in the morning and just flicks on the light. Right? It's, it's hurtful. It can feel like that spiritually when you're confronted with God's word, but, but we don't want to close our eyes to this. We, we want to let God speak to us, get up, and live in the light. And the Spirit will work there. Look at verse 21. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. This verse takes us back to the new birth in verses 1 through 8. We believe in Christ. We're changed into His likeness only by the grace of God. His Spirit does this work in us. So having experienced the deep, deep love of God in the Gospels, Christians can actually boast in our weaknesses because we want to magnify God's grace for all to see. Our desire to do good works is because of who we are now in Christ. You are what you worship. And so we want people to see the glory of God and in the life we live. This is what our church life is all about it's about His glory. So this is the reason we confess in our church covenant that we're relying on His gracious aid. Everything that's done here is ultimately attributed to God's grace. Not the members, not the leaders, but God for His glory. So let me just wrap up our time here with a, a very unlikely illustration for what I think these verses are like. Let's say an entire class of students cheated on their final exam for their final class. And the professor knows it. And so everybody's about to fail. But then the professor stands up and says, if you cheated on this exam, step forward and confess. And I will take the exam for you. And even though the professor offers this pass to everyone who steps forward and confesses, I cheated. I'm a chinner, cheater. few step forward. Why? Because they don't want to be exposed as a cheater. And they think that there's a good chance that maybe I'll get away with it. But eventually you step forward. And the teacher takes the exam for you. And you Pass the degree is yours but that's not all the teacher comes alongside you and says now that you've passed the exam i'm going to help you learn everything on that exam so that you'll become what that degree says you are and at that point over time though you once felt guilty of cheating you now gladly put what you now you know into practice as an expression of thanks for your teacher. And you want everyone to know about it. When we look to Christ and find salvation, the new life that we live by the Spirit is our true worship. And we become more like what or who we worship by the Spirit's ongoing work. So, Understand and realize your sin sickness. See God's love for you. Run to the light of Christ and become like what you worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the deep, deep love and showing sinners like us that we no longer have to say that is who we are, but can look to Christ and his spirit's work in us and say that we are your children. And so, Father, we pray that with the truth of this word we've now looked at, we we ask that you would do this good work in us, conform us into your likeness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.